Turn your Bibles, if you would, to the fourth chapter again. We're going to take a little trip backwards. And uh, as we do that, I need to change a slide here because it was in the wrong order. Didn't do that yet. I want to take just a small trip backwards um, because it's important to set the context. And remember, Scripture can't be rightly divided unless we take it in its context. And we kind of rushed over in our last study last Sunday these couple of verses that I think are so important for us to gather because there are central truths. Unity has to be founded on, on solid, sound, biblical truth and doctrine. And, and if you'll notice, it is Paul's intention, I believe, the Holy Spirit's intention writing through Paul, that he didn't communicate unity until he communicated doctrine. And so right doctrine is unbelievably important to that unity that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ. And here's why. Unless you know what you're agreeing to, you can't be agreed. So two can't walk together, as Amos said, unless they be agreed. We can't go the same direction, have the same purpose, have any commonality whatsoever, unless we know what we're agreeing to. And I can show that to you in just a very minor illustration. If you go to buy a car... You don't walk into the car dealership and say, give me that Volkswagen over there. And then you you go to pick up your car and you have not made a deal, gone over the contract, and and then you get out. $250,000? I didn't agree to that. Well, here's the reason. You didn't discuss the terms that you were agreeing to. You have to discuss the terms that you're agreeing to in order to be unified in Christ. And so Paul now lays out for us this beautiful picture that we have, these true grounds uh, for unity. Would you pray with me? Father, we have come again this day to study your word. Lord, we want to know what it is that unifies us. Lord, we want to know the truth of your word. And so, God, we ask that by your Spirit you would come and fill us, that you'd anoint us, that we would take in your word, that word would settle into our hearts as truth, that we might know what it is that you want us to be. And so, Lord, speak to us through the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4, as we go backwards just a little bit before we move on, and there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Do you see the picture here? It is so important to grasp this before we move on into all the applicational details that we'll see with the remainder of this amazing book. Because as the body of Christ, we are agreeing to a central body of evidence. And that evidence is contained in an outline form in these seven things. There is exactly one body of Christ. There are many manifestations of that one body. We have Baptist brethren and Presbyterian brethren. We have non-denominational brethren. We have all kinds of people who are in a church where the central tenets of their faith believe these seven things. And so these seven things laid out by the Holy Spirit are monumentally important because we have to agree to them to actually claim to be part of the one body that we're supposed to be. There's not Christian group A and Christian group B and Christian group C. There's one group of people on this earth who are known collectively 
as the body of Christ, real believers, real Christians. So much of the church is divided that they reach the place to where when they consider what makes church, it becomes about non-essential things. Well, you don't speak in tongues. Or, you know, you guys, I saw people standing up and praising God today. Oh, horror. I can tell you there are people, oh, well, you know. I I actually attended a church to where, you know, the the musicians turned their back to everyone because they didn't want to take the glory of the Lord. Come on, everybody knows it's you playing, okay? (laughs) And they don't want to see that side of you anyway. You, You see, we start focusing on the things that don't matter. And before you know it, we're not actually focusing on the things that do matter. And so he gives us a short outline here. One body, of course, this is the body of Christ. It's that picture there in 1 Corinthians that's given to us. This body is a model for all churches everywhere. You can't claim to be a Christian and claim to be part of something other than the one body. Scripture says so. Not Jeff. The Bible says so. There's one church, many manifestations of that church, different ways of expression, so all kinds of things that don't matter, that different churches take up, but the central tenets, these things, are absolutely essential. In that, who authored Scripture? Was it not the Holy Spirit? So if there's one church, and there's one Spirit, and that one Spirit is inside of all of us, We're all supposed to have the same guidelines coming from the same Bible that was written by the same Spirit that now is in you. Amen? Part of the problem with the church is we do not have that unity. Well, you know, we kind of don't believe those words. You know, we like the words of Jesus, but the words of Paul, we need to take those out. And so it's immensely important that we realize that there is one Spirit, that same Holy Spirit, indwells all of us. And the body of Christ will accomplish nothing without the Spirit of Christ. We cannot have the power of Christ without the Holy Spirit in us. And so we have that same Spirit. There is also one hope of your calling. And I love this, because from the beginning of the church age... As Jesus passes along, remember he said, I am giving these things to you, I'm going to go away, you now are going to take this light into the world. So the church, in essence, is that visible manifestation that Jesus was. We are not Jesus himself, but we're supposed to be so much like him that when people see us, they see him, amen? In order to do that, he says, look, it could get kind of tough on this earth, and so I want you to know something. One day I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to call the church home. The church will have run its course. We call that the rapture of the church. Each one of you, if you happen to exit this planet before the rest of us, the Lord hasn't peeked his head through the clouds and sounded the trumpet and come after his church, which, by the way, if you want more on this, come Thursday night, we're studying the rapture of the church as our study in Revelation continues. But as we get to that place to where the Lord takes home the church corporately, from that day to this, we can go, today might be the day. Amen? Any of you ever do little mini rapture drills? We jump in the back sometimes. <laughs> Trying to get a head start, you know, just like, I'm going to beat you there. You know, everybody lifts up off the ground. Yeah, we look forward to that day. That's the hope of our calling. He's going to call us home. We're gone. We're out of here. 
Some of us get to go a little earlier than the rest, called home. But we're going home. There's one hope in your calling. That hope is Jesus. He went before, and you too shall go with. So there's that hope. Notice he goes on to say, and this is so important to us, there is one Lord. There's not multiple lords of the church. There's exactly one Lord. That one Lord has put one spirit in us. That one Lord has given us a singular promise that one day he's going to take us home. He's put his mark on us as the body of Christ. And so he says, look, there's only one commander of the church. Amen? Not me. It's him. He is the Lord of his church. And that word in the Old Testament, New Testament sense, Yahweh Adonai, he is God who is Lord, simply means that he dictates what his church is supposed to be like and what they act like and how they say and speak forth that truth. And so there can't be a different Lord. When you talk to some people, their Lord is their denominational headquarters. And whatever the denominational headquarters says, that's what they become. We are to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord. Amen? Now we can disagree on all kinds of minor things, but that central fact is he's given us his word. You see, he speaks to us that truth. And so in that way, if Jesus is Lord, he's not going to tell you one thing and tell me something else on a basic central issue. In other words, he's not going to tell you, well, you're free to drink beer in church. And everybody else, he's saying, no, that's probably not going to work real well because it's going to stumble everybody. He's not going to tell you, well, you're the one exact case to where, you know, it's okay if you live with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you get married. He's not going to tell people that. There's one Lord, and that one Lord, if there's a truth that you need to know, is going to tell both of you exactly the same thing. That's why when we redefined marriage, I can tell you they were wrong because he said otherwise. Amen? Amen? That's the truth. So the Lord spoke, and as the Lord speaks, we do what the Lord says because he is the master. There's one Lord. We bow to our Lord. We don't bow to anyone else. There's one faith, and that's a settled body of evidence. That's why when people tell me, well, we have this faith, or I have that faith, and I point them to this verse, and they say, well, what does that mean? It means there's one faith. Exactly what it says. You do not have a different kind of faith than anybody else who calls themselves a Christian. Faith is a gift. It came from God. It was given to you. You can't boast about it. Amen? He's not, he may give you a measure of faith for works and those types of things that's different than what I have, but the central body of evidence is the one faith that every one of us walks in that's in this room that names the name of Christ. And so you've been saved by grace and through faith. Amen? That faith is what unites us. I don't get there by works, neither do you. I get there because of my faith in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ is the sinless Lamb of God. He came to this earth. When he came to this earth, he lived a perfect life without sin, that he died on Calvary's cross, he was buried in the grave, he was raised three days later, and he lives forevermore. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? That's faith. That's saving faith. 
And so we have that faith. Faith was delivered, as Jude verse 3 says, to the saints. That's what we got delivered. We don't get an opportunity. Why? I'm going to make up a new faith. My faith is something else. No, your faith is the one faith, or it's not faith at all. And can I just say to you, there's an awful lot of people in our world that have faith in faith. They don't have faith in Jesus Christ. They have faith in faith. They start to speak forth things, and they think if they just say it long enough and loud enough and hard enough that somehow it's going to come to pass. That's faith in faith. Because my Bible says that the poor will be with you always. Not that we want anybody to be poor, but there are going to be poor people on this earth, and you're not all going to get your little genie in the bottle wishes. That's not faith. That's testing God. That's you trying to tell God how he should run your life. Never works out very well. So he says, look, there's also one baptism. That baptism is not talking about water baptism or immersion. It's talking about the baptism that comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is in you when you get saved. It's the Spirit that is the guarantee that you're going to heaven. The Holy Spirit now indwells every single believer. And so that Spirit is not going to be a different Spirit in you than it is in me. It's the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for by one Spirit, it says in verse 13, we were all baptized into the one body. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and have all been made to drink into the one Spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. In other words, we're all filled with the same Spirit. We have all kinds of different giftings and things that we're going to be able to accomplish in the Lord, but as far as that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's exactly one. Some people want, well, you know, we do it this way. Well, we speak in tongues. That's not what this is talking about. That is an external gift that God does not give to everybody. Matter of fact, Paul makes that case. You continue that study from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. He makes the case, look, I wish you would all prophesy. Because tongues, if it's not rightly interpreted, can become a distraction. Matter of fact, some unbelievers might hear you doing that, and they might go, ah! Can I share with you? I spent 23 years on staff with Pastor Chuck Smith. I never once, not once, heard him pray in tongues. Never. Not that he didn't. I never heard it. So we have all kinds of people. They get all divided and heated. Well, you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Your Bible doesn't say that. It says, yeah, amen. You're baptized in one spirit. The spirit is in you. It'll get manifested in all kinds of different ways. But the one spirit that's in you doesn't cause division and doesn't make you think wrongly about other people. I praise God for my brothers and sisters who happen to go to a more Pentecostal church. Praise the Lord. But I can tell you this. I'm concerned about the one spirit that's in, not the one spirit that's out. And finally, there's one God. There's one Father. And I love this. Everybody knows how the Lord's Prayer starts, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, it's ours because there's only one. He's our Abba, Father, Dad. There isn't a different Father of each church. There's one Father of all churches. And it's like this. When you go to a family gathering, and and there he is, the, the Father of the family, he is the one to whom everyone else is subservient to. There's only one. They're not like competing dadship. 
It's like whoever's the father's the father, period. All the kids are underneath. Doesn't matter whether they're first, second, third, fourth, or tenth. There's only one father. It's the same here. We have God the Father. He loved us through Jesus, his son. Why Paul wrote those words in Romans 16. I urge you, brethren, to note those who cause divisions, offenses, teach contrary doctrine. He says, look, there are people going to have all kinds of ideas about who God is. There's only one Father. And we're all under His rule, His reign. There's only one Christ. We all serve Him. And so these things will be joined together when we get to verse 15. Speaking the truth, therefore, in love. You see, we take these things, we begin to act on them. And so he now begins to exp- express a few things. These gifts that he gives for unity. Because there are gifts that God gives to men. Notice verse 7. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You realize that your Bible says that every last one of you, every one of you is going to have at least one gift. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it reminds us of that truth. Everyone has something to bring to the family. Amen? Some of those abilities are natural abilities. We can use those things. But there's also a spiritual gift that's given to you. Maybe it's a gift of encouragement. Maybe it's a gift of administration. We do not have all the gifts mentioned here. And in fact, we have mostly those gifts that are used in leadership in the church because at this time, Paul was speaking forth to a group that were going to take it into the world. So he says, here, I'm going to give you these four in this particular book. But here we we find this truth, and it has to be brought home into our hearts and our minds. Look, he knows every member of every church. And he didn't create anybody as useless cannon fodder, okay? None of you are just pawns in the game of life. Everyone who names the name of Christ is on this earth for a purpose. And that purpose is unique to you, but complementary to the body. Do you understand? It's unique to you. He made you you. He gave you the personality. He made me like I am. I'm sorry for that at times. You know, I, I talk, it's just like, people go, you got all kinds of energy. Yeah, it's because I'm crazy. God made me that way. He's made me unique and made you unique. And when we get together, it is amazing what we can do. Because you have gifts that complement mine. I have gifts that complement yours. And we all of a sudden become greater than our individual efforts because we collectively are part of the one body. Amen? You see what happens? And then your little special thing that you can do for the Lord gets added to the special things I can do for the Lord. And all of a sudden we can accomplish untold amounts of great things for the Lord. That's why the children of God are not supposed to live in isolation. Do you know that? I feel sorry for people who say, well, I belong to the invisible church. I have people tell, they'll honestly, they'll look at, well, I belong to the invisible church. Well, it's true. There is one body. We all belong to it. And they say, it's the invisible church. And they'll go, you know, can you support this or support that? I say, go talk to your invisible God. <laughs> well, they, they, it's like, oh, no, you can't. We can do things that a smaller church can't. And a smaller church can do things that we can't because they're small. But we belong to a body, and that body functions in this world. And so Jesus begins to say these things. He says, look, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. And he goes on, there's a parenthetical statement here. And because it's talking about something 
that we're, we kind of see in Luke chapter 16. Now, I just want you to simply see it. It's not something you need to dwell on today because I don't think it's uh, important to the context of what's being said here in, in the way that I would like to explain it to you. But he said, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. You remember before Christ died on Calvary's cross, there were still people who died in faith. When you read Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham died in faith, amen? And so on and so forth. All Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these great men of faith. David, they all died in faith. Luke chapter 16 gives us this incredible picture. It's a story of the rich man and Lazarus, and they are in the waiting place. They're in Hades. They're in Sheol, the abode of the dead. There is a great gulf fixed between them. On one side is torment. On the other side, Lazarus is being tended to. He's being loved on. And in fact, if you remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradiso. Amen? He did not say heaven. He said, I'll see you in paradise in a little while. And so what did Jesus do during those three days? that he was in the grave. Remember, he was not yet raised. When he went into the grave, he first descended, who would then ascend. And when he did so, he said, Moses, good to see you. Abraham, nice to see you as well. Jacob, long time no see. And he led those captives that were waiting the glory of the Lord as he completes it, because what he said on the cross was to tell us, it is finished, Amen. And so the reason this is here is he's speaking of the victory. He has the capacity to give these gifts away because he secured them with his own life. When he descended, he said, Satan, take this. I'm taking my people with me. They're out. You get to stay here. And those are still waiting until we reach the end of the book of Revelation, the great white throne judgment. They still are awaiting their final judgment. But those who died in faith, gone. Just as it now tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? So he gives this as a way to kind of say, look, I can give these gifts. I made them possible. I made the one church. I unified even the Old Testament saints who died in faith. I just brought them in. It's not just Jews and Greeks. It's those who died in faith throughout all of time. Me, I would have left Adam there a while longer. Just saying. Dude, you realize how much trouble you have caused the rest of us. I know even Adam got to go. They're like, yes. And so he continues onward to the giver of the gifts. He just says, look, I, I, I defeated death itself. It's a vanquished foe. Amen? Anybody thankful for that? Death has been defeated in Jesus. Amen. So Christ can give out whatever he wants. It's a victory parade, in other words. Look, I say, here, have some of that. And so he does that through some very gifted men. And there's a list here, and it really requires that we just simply look at them. And I, I would remind you that in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, and here in Ephesians, the lists are not the same. There's all kinds of gifts that God gives. But I think he's focusing in on just these gifts that he normally gives to people. And he begins with apostles. And he says, and he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some. Notice this, please note, and it's a correct rendering of the original language. He said some pastors and teachers. 
He doesn't say some pastors and some teachers. He says some pastor teachers. I believe those two gifts are meant to be linked together. That pastors are supposed to be teachers, and the best use of the teaching gift is to also be a pastor. Now, having said that, there are some people, like those very often who teach in Bible college and seminary, who may just have a teaching gift, and they use that teaching gift. But in the pastoral role, pastors are supposed to be teachers. And so he begins here by saying, look, there are apostles. It means simply some who've been sent on a commission. And I believe it's referring specifically to the the twelve plus the apostle Paul. And the reason I say that is they had a very specific and a very unique message to take out into the world because at that time there were no Bibles. Nobody had a Bible. They didn't walk around with the, the Jesus-only Bible. They didn't carry a whole scroll. Of very, not, not only that, most of the words that we have in the New Testament had not even been codified. They weren't even written down yet. And so the apostles went out and they took this message orally out into the world. And so as they're taking the message out, they were sent on a very specific commission. And so they were the apostles of that time. They took the good news out into the world. And then he goes on to say prophets. And I want to give you just a real sense of that during that time. Most of us, when we think prophets, we think of, you know, people who speak about the last days things and end times things. People will always come to me and say, well, you know, uh, this guy prophesied about that and prophesied about this. And he said, let me prophesy to you. Because anytime you take out your Bible and you repeat it word for word, you're actually speaking forth the word of God. That is also a prophet. You are communicating what God has said. That's what prophet actually means. You're simply telling other people what God has told you. So anytime you take the word of God and you communicate it to people, clearly, concisely, and accurately, you're actually speaking forth prophetically the word. We need to have more people bold enough to speak forth the prophetic word of God. Thus says the Lord. And so he gave some to be prophets. During that day and time, of course, there were prophets who spoke about the last days things and they wrote them down. Those guys were very unique. There were very few of them. And praise God that the Lord has given us that what we call the the last days scenario through those prophets. The Isaiahs, the Daniels, the Zacharias, those men. But he's given us literally thousands of of people that will prophetically speak forth the word. You'll say, look, this is what God's word says. This is what we're to do as people. And so when we confront our culture in that way, we are absolutely being able to be used that way in in a prophetic sense. So they were gifted men who had these things. He goes on to say evangelists. And, And I want to remind you, that when you think of evangelists, it's actually quite easy to see. There are people who have a gift of sharing the gospel message itself. That's not the full counsel of God's word, by the way. It's a very specific message that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, who is one of one, came to this earth, was born of a virgin. He died a sinless death on Calvary's cross for my sins. My sins were sponged because of his death. He was laid in the grave. Three days later, he was raised, and he lives forevermore, seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. Amen? That's a very specific message. That's the message of salvation. said, you need to believe this first 
before any of the rest of it makes any sense to you. And so there are those. You can, you can name them, the Billy Grahams, the, the Greg Lorries of the world. That is the gift of evangelism. Their primary message is, look, you need a Savior because you're a sinner. Those are evangelists. And then finally, the pastor-teacher. And I want to remind you of something. The word pastor itself, in its truest sense, means shepherd. That's what it means. So when somebody says they're a shepherd, what they're really doing is tending sheep. You have to feed sheep. You have to tend sheep. Because if you just feed sheep, they get fat, they roll over and die. You have to tend sheep. You've got to have to help sheep be sheep. And so what he's really saying is, is I'm going to gift some people with this role of both pastor and teacher. And because here's what the body of Christ desperately needs in our world today. Pastors who will teach the truth and then tend sheep. And you can't tend sheep from a limo. You can't tend sheep if you're never with sheep. Where do shepherds reside? Does anybody know the answer to that question? With the sheep. They need to live with the sheep. When you see shepherds tending sheep, they're with the sheep. And sometimes sheep bite. And sometimes sheep smell. And sometimes sheep need to have their legs tended. Sometimes the shepherd even breaks the legs of the sheep if they're wayward. He gives them a little bit of a limp so they'll stick close to home. Now, having said that, there'll be no leg-breaking service this afternoon. Don't come to me and say, could you break my leg? No, I'm not breaking your leg. But there are times when I have to take out God's word and say, thus says the Lord. I will speak prophetically into your life. Look, it hurts, right? Anybody in here been hurt by God's word? I have. God's word is sharp. It's a two-edged sword. And sometimes it smacks you upside the head. Sometimes you have to allow the word of God to do that. A good shepherd knows the difference between letting someone be inflicted with some pain by the word and intentionally doing something that will harm them. The word of God is sufficient in that sense. And the pastor is supposed to deliver it, and then you've got to tend sheep. So if somebody's leg needs to be set, you set it. If they need to be taken to a nice quiet place they can lay down, you do that. And so he says, look, I'm going to give some people the gift of pastor teacher so it's up to me to hear from the lord so that i can know when i need to use a staff or when i need to go to some nice cool water so we can lay down in the shade there's time place for both and as we do that then we see that unity in the body you see if you have a shepherd who won't speak forth the word of god will not tell the people the truth then your Bible says he's a false shepherd and you shouldn't follow him. Because if you don't ever get wounded at church, I have not done my job. Now, it doesn't mean I want to wound anybody. It doesn't even mean that I like doing it. Matter of fact, there are times it's like, oh, Lord, do I have to teach him that? I do. I look at my own notes. I'm going, I'm not, I have arguments with God. I am not teaching him that, God. Because I have to live that if I teach him that. Those of you that, you know what I'm saying, don't you? Your kids come to you with a problem. You remember your BC days. I'm not teaching them that, God. I'd be a hypocrite. But you've got to teach them the truth if you love them. If you want to tend them. If you want to care for sheep. You've got to give them the whole counsel.
And so this beauty that is the unity of the body of Christ is absolutely foundationally fixed to the truth of God's Word. It is foundationally fixed to who we are as the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ. It isn't a denominational issue. It's a Jesus issue. Amen? And if we live that way, you'd be surprised what your gifts can do out there in the world because you have gifts that I don't have. And so there's people you can reach I can't reach. There are people you can talk to won't listen to me. There are people in your family I'll never get an opportunity to talk to. So he uniquely gifted you. You go minister to them because you're part of the body. You're part of the solution. And we do that together, folks. And I pray that we're so effective that the walls of this church cannot hold us all. I pray that we've we got to figure out some other way to get this job done because we have done it so well that the Lord just fills us up to overflowing uh, beyond our wildest imagination. Not only are we seeing the gift of evangelism, people coming to Christ, but they're being fed and tended, pastorally cared for, and once they do that, they start to reproduce sheep. Amen? Amen. The beauty of the unity that we have in Christ. He will not lead us astray. He will lead us to cool waters. He'll put us in a meadow where it's good to lay down. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so grateful for this time this morning. And we just lift this up to you, Lord. Pray these words would just sink in and penetrate. Go where they need to go. Lord, we're grateful for your love for us. Thank you that you apply the right amount of truth and love in each situation. God, you never overdo it. You never underdo it. God, we're grateful that you would adopt us into your family. God, we probably wouldn't have brought our own selves in even. God, but you love us. Your thoughts towards us are a, a future. They're a hope. And we're so grateful for it. So God, bind us together as we serve you in these last days. Lord, we look forward to the day when you say, come on home. But until then, we just ask that you'd use us. Take our gifts. Put us out into the world that the world might know our Savior Jesus, that they would be set free, unbound, and brought in. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.